Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Structurally, we have we have a problem in capitalism. We have a problem that says the only thing a company can do is make as much money for its shareholders as possible. But yet, we know companies create value in all kinds of other ways. Hello, welcome to Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, quick moment of promotion: If you are not listening to Impeachment Explained, um, either podcast, uh, you should be. It's coming out on Saturdays, and what, what I'm trying to do there is use impeachment as a lens on the political system. Impeachment is this amazing culmination of structures and trends and forces and decisions that have been driving and defining American politics for a long time, but it's all coming together in this insane, historic way. Um, around impeachment. And so trying to pull out of the day-to-day of the story and see what is shaping the story, the structure of American government, the media ecosystem of the right, and so on and so forth, has been really illuminating. A lot has emerged in that reporting process that I did not expect, and I'm pretty happy with how that project is turning out, at least as a process of my own learning. And so I think if you enjoy the show, you're going to enjoy that one too. You can get impeachment explained wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just go subscribe. But today, Yancey Strickler. So Yancey is the former CEO of Kickstarter, one of the co-founders of Kickstarter. Uh, You might remember his name from the Edward Norton podcast, where Norton said that he had met this guy, Yancey Strickler, and he'd given him a a book called This Could Be Our Future. And like Norton could not stop thinking about it. He could not stop thinking about the ideas of that book. And the idea of that book is that we have become, as a society, captured by what is actually a value, a a myth, a morality structure that we never even see as such, which is financial maximization. We have become captured by the idea that the right way to make decisions, uh, business decisions, but also a lot of other kinds of decisions, is to maximize financial return. And in a very deep way, Kickstarter was an assault on that, right? The idea that people would just give money to something with no guaranteed ROI just because they wanted to see the thing exist is quite a challenge to some more traditional models of rational agents and actors and interests. But he's written this book, which is a manifesto trying to argue, trying to make people see that our economy does not run on natural law. It runs on values. And the value of financial maximization is a questionable one. And over a 20 or 30 or 40 year time frame, it can be questioned and it could even be overturned. And what it should be overturned with, whether Strickler has the right version of that, we talk about that in the show. I'm not 100% sure that what he proposes is a, is a full-grown structure that can uh, stand in for it. But the broad argument he's making here, there's a lot to it. Uh, there's a lot to recognizing that things that we take for granted as somehow just the way things are or the the natural push of our institutions, nah, 
Those are beliefs. They were not always our beliefs. They're beliefs in many cases. A lot of people put a lot of time and energy and strategy and money into making us believe. And they can, over long periods of time, be changed. Uh, but only if people recognize what they are from the outset. As always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Yancy Strickler. How's it going? Hey, hey, afternoon, morning. Morning. Whatever. whatever I think it's morning for me. Where are you? Is. I'm in New York. Okay, I'm in, uh, I'm in, I'm in California, so we're still in the morning and on fire. Yeah. yeah. How's the smoke? There's a lot of it. We had a power outage for a couple of days. Looks like we may get another one. Um, you know, we're, I know you're an uninhabitable Earth fan, and I keep thinking about this David Boswell's line that the great existential insight of climate change is how fragile mm-hmm. we are atop nature, how we're just mm-hmm. like a little bit of mold. And yeah, it feels like that right now. Yeah. I mean, this is just n- normal now. Yeah. You're in LA. Am I wrong? Yeah, about I'm in that? LA. Okay. So you, you, you feel it too. Yeah. I mean, I, when there's a fire, I can see the smoke plumes from the house. You know, it's like, keep the kid inside those days. It's, it, you know, we're going to move. <laughs> Maybe the end result <laughs> of that is we're going to move. Yeah. I, I, we just moved back here. Well, I guess I moved back to, to California. Um, my wife hadn't lived here before. And compare, I don't know where you grew up, but compared to, I guess I do actually, because I read your book. Um, but compared to when I grew up in Southern California, the feeling of precarity is really new. Uh, it didn't feel, we had earthquakes and we did stop, drop and roll drills in, in school all the time, but it didn't feel at that time like things were dangerous in the way that now it's just become a norm that every year you're going to have unstoppable wildfires, millions of people are going to lose power, and it's just the beginning. I saw Quinn Norton had a piece about how we're going to have to get used to the idea that we don't get to live where we want anymore. I thought that was a, a nice way to, to look at it. Um, you know, I've been, I've been getting more and more involved with Extinction Rebellion. And uh, like I, I'm very impressed with how they're thinking about this. In what way? Well, I mean, they talk about it's really compassionate. I mean, the, part of what they see is their social disruptions. Part of the point is acclimating people to the idea that life is normal is, is ending. And rather than people first confront these crises when it's truly existential, they feel like part of what they're doing is like preparing the British public for what's coming. Um, and I don't, I don't know, the more I've gotten to know them, just the more I'm struck by like a real compassion that they have. And I love that they're post, post blame, post shame. Like they're like, we're all a part of this. We're no better than anybody. Um, and I, you know, I think that's the right attitude. There's a way in which it does seem to me to, to relate a little bit to something in your work, which is we operate under ideas that we take for granted. And one of the ideas we've taken for granted for a long time is that we've more or less mastered nature. That if you're mm-hmm. in a developed rich country, you know, you live in a big building in a city, you can't, you can't see the ocean, you can't see sand, you can't see trees, that somehow we've mastered nature. And I think we're about to live through a period where we realized that that was just an idea. That was just something we believed through illusion and social consensus. And sometimes we change our ideas and sometimes the world changes our ideas for us. And I think the world's about to change our ideas for us, our governing narrative for us. Yeah, we, we may be at the tail end of like a 60-year a, a anomaly in human history of extreme comfort and you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that like after packaging was invented in the 1940s and 50s, it only took five years before the Keep America Beautiful campaign had to start. 
you know, we could only, we could only manage this lifestyle for so long. I mean, for not very long at all before we were immediately feeling, you know, the ways that it challenges us. And, um, yeah, there's just a lot of those things are piling up right now. It's scary. Yeah. This is my most optimistic take on climate change. And it is so pessimistic in its nature, which is that the way people talk about it as existential, um, in the sense that it is overstated, it is overstated in the way that human beings have for almost all of human history lived at the mercy of nature. And what we are doing is not going into an unknown state for human civilization, but a known state where mm. we are about to roll back um, so much of our technological advance, so much of what we have, the, the hard fought gains to protect ourselves from things like storms and um, heat waves and droughts and so much of the rest of it that at least if you've been living in a, in a rich country, you felt pretty protected from. And that as climate change accelerates the power of nature's hold on us, uh, we're just going backwards. It's not something that is unimaginable in the scope of human history, which is, I think, sometimes how it is proclaimed. It could be if we go far enough, but 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 for a while it will not be. What it'll be is, you know, a hundred years ago, these things would kill thousands, tens of thousands of people. Earthquakes kill thousands of people, and you know, we're 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 visiting that back upon ourselves and our descendants again, which is horrible, but but not new. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if. If all of humanity were focused on solving the climate crisis, I, I would be very optimistic about our abilities. Like I, I really, I, I'm, I'm such a believer in the power of human organization and ambition and creativity. Like I'm, I'm so long on that. But how can we be focused on what matters? Um, and you know, I think the existential threat of the climate change is going to become an imminent threat. And the question is whether we will then muster the courage, or whether the powers that be will be fine with what's happening. Because it enable it, it just means the current power structure will be cemented and we'll manage through, we'll muddle through, try to make as few changes as possible. You know, if that's the path, then you know, then I think we're in trouble. But if you could have that energy, which I don't know if you read the Jonathan Safran Frower book, um, We Are the Weather, uh, but he has a nice he he has a really nice job of talking about past eras when we did have the energy, um, and sort of questioning why it is we can't get back there. Something So I've been doing this climate series on the podcast, and something that you really realize when you talk to climate scientists is that the thing the models cannot decide, cannot describe, cannot even include, is this question of does climate change and climate crisis, does it make us more cooperative, focused, creative, compassionate, or does it make us more defensive, scared, cruel, zero-sum, tribal. And if climate change makes us worse, we're fucked. Um, mm -hmm. Which so far, by the way, seems like it probably makes us a, a bit worse. As things get bad, we begin to blame others. I mean, you know, whether or not you believe that the, the Syrian refugees are a climate issue or not, people can argue about that. We are going to have a lot of climate refugees in the future. And I would not say that the refugee crisis has made the European Union a stronger political organization or America a stronger place. And so the question of, like, what does it do to us is something the scientists can't answer. But when I talk to them, that is a thing that the most perceptive of them are most afraid of. It's mm -hmm. by no means an unsolvable problem, but it's unsolvable if it brings out the worst as opposed to the best in us.
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, XR, Extinction Rebellion is trying, you know, they're, they talk about hope, you know, they're, they're very serious and they're unblinking about where we are and they're kind of post grief because they're saying that what we have now, we can't keep, but they really do try to express a sense of hope because, you know, may, maybe with the right attitude, may, maybe with a certain perspective, we come in with the, Hey, let's, you know, let's, let's be the new greatest generation. Let's prove ourselves. Let's, you know, let's survive and do our ancestors and, and future generations proud. So I, you know, maybe, maybe we can create a narrative that people will buy into and that people will want to believe because the flip side of not believing in that is going to be, you know, uh, children of men, you know, kind of darkness. All right. I'm going to pull us out of one kind of darkness and, and, and into another here. Um, before we get to the new book, uh, I want to talk about how I first came into contact with your writing, which is the dark forest theory of the internet. Um, can you talk a bit about that idea? Yeah. I mean, this was an essay I wrote earlier this year, and I wrote it after um, I was reflecting on, on the fact that I'm bad at the internet. Like, I feel like I'm a pretty good adult. Um, but you know, I, I'm, I'm like confident we could have a conversation on a plane and we'd both enjoy ourselves. But on the internet, I'm just, I'm just so awkward. And for many years, I just chose to blame the internet for that. I'm just like, well, you know, it's stupid. And, and then I just started to think about this question of what, what would it mean to try to be, be myself on the internet? What if there's like a coming of age online that I need to go through? And in that tried to question why it was I was so afraid to do that. And it made me think about the, the brilliant Shishin Lu books, uh, that starts with a three body problem. And in it, he, he expresses this theory of the universe, um, which is that human beings look out into space. We, we send, you know, SETI messages into space. We keep waiting for a response and no one says anything back. And that drives us to think that there must not be anyone there. Cause if they were, of course, they'd be so happy to hear from us. All the aliens are just can't wait to meet humans and, and they're on their way. But, you know, instead no one writes back. And so in the book, he, he, offers instead a metaphor where he says, think of a dark forest at night. A dark forest at night is also silent. You don't see anything. Uh, that could lead you to think that the dark forest is empty, but actually the dark forest is full. It's just that everything that lives there has learned that it's too dangerous to show themselves. So instead they stay silent. And so the theory would be then that us on Earth, we are similarly in a dark forest of the universe where there's many, many life forms out there. However, we're the only ones dumb enough to show our heads. And I feel like that what it made me think about is that the internet has become the same thing where it seems like the, the risk and reward of showing yourself, much less even showing your real self, but showing yourself online just feels so dangerous. You become a target. You have this fear of being under siege. So instead we all hide. We hide in Slack channels. We hide in tiny letter and Substack emails. We, we hide in iMessage threads and WhatsApp threads. And fewer and fewer of us are saying what we really think. And at the same time, then the, the dominant, you know, the dominant zeitgeist is being held by those more aggressive voices, those hunters uh, who have nothing to fear because they are the ones others should fear. And so it just empties out um, just the mainstream conversation from anything other than kind of a, an aggressiveness and a, a feeling of predator and prey. And uh, it's terrifying to think about. And, and the reaction I had once I sort of thought that through was, well, 
you know, I think I've got to learn how to step up and be myself. It feels like the cost of all of us hiding would be extraordinary. Um, so I'm going to, you know, try to take on this challenge of being a human being on the internet. And, and honestly, it's still a struggle for me. Um, and, and even now, like a book coming out, I feel, you know, it's, it's, it's anxiety inducing. Um, but, uh, you know, same with the climate crisis. I, I just, I refuse to give in. You know, I, 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 maybe this is the way it goes, but it, it goes that way for sure if we give into it. But maybe if we fight it, maybe it doesn't. So I, I'm trying to do that. And when you talk about being a human on the internet, you're, it sounds to me like you're talking about just being vulnerable, saying things that people could use to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, who knows what that's going to be? I mean, I feel vulnerable about so many things that, you know, probably nine out of 10 of them, someone else would be like, why, why, why does, why do you care about that? But for me, you know, whatever, we tie ourselves in knots, uh, in these ways. But yeah, I mean, sticking your neck out, you know, sticking your neck out. Um, you know, it's, you can do it when there's safety in numbers, you know, when everyone is changing their profile pic to something, when there's a big hashtag, maybe, you know, then you get sort of the mob mentality. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's 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 hard. It's hard. The thing that I worry about uh, online is that there are very few places now that seem to me to permit soft voices. And so, as you say, there is a selection effect where all of these different platforms are dominated by the loudest voices. It selects for a personality type that is on some level unfiltered, on another level just loves conflict and aggression and spectacle. And there's a way in which that's always been true in mass media, right? I mean, there's something to being outrageous. Donald Trump was famous before Twitter. Um, he was famous in part for being, you know, outrageous and flamboyant and and so on. But as we've moved into this, like, predator-prey dynamic that you describe, I don't know. Uh, it's possible to compete in it and it's possible to be in it. But in terms of imagining what our society looks like 20 or 30 or 40 years forward, if we just keep building spheres where that is what we push people towards being or pretending to be, and that is what we select for and the people whom are really valued uh, on, on these platforms, it doesn't sound to me like we are creating the kind of future discourse and communities that we would hope for. But, you know, you're someone that you had a really positive effect on that with the work you did with the Post and, you know, the Times way back when and sort of shifting, trying to bring a different tone to how we talked about politics. And maybe that tone is now like run away and become its own its own different thing now. But I feel like that that was an example of, you know, you you just had a distinct voice and a way of talking that struck a chord and and did shift how people thought about things and how people talked about things. Now, maybe we get used to that stuff pretty quickly, but th there is the power of a voice to cut through. Um, and, and, you know, m maybe we just need more of those. Yeah, I mean, I think every era has, every era incentivizes different kinds of voices. And uh, something I noticed is that, as you say, the wonk blog voice that I developed, which was very much a built-in counterposition to horse race journalism, like the problem I saw myself as fighting with was this idea that politics was a game and that the thing to cover was the polls and the campaign and what so-and-so said. And so I sort of developed this voice and identity and approach and headlines and charts and so on to create a way of thinking about policy and a way of popularizing policy. And it's very funny then to see people look at that and say, oh, you just imagine like technocracy can solve everything. Like in, in a way, I feel like that succeeded well enough um, that then people began to see what would the flaws be if that were the dominant conversation, which I think is also, uh, you know, at least on some level, correct uh, a correct analysis and, and reaction. 
And I'll say that for me now, one reason I connected to your dark forest theory of the internet is that for me, the podcast is something of a dark forest. I on mm-hmm. Twitter, where you know I have a lot of followers and so on, um, and and probably able to be a voice on Twitter. I don't like the conversation, and I feel that on the podcast, it's a space where I can have conversations that model more what I think discourse should sound like, as opposed to fitting into a model that I think is making discourse worse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think if there's anything that makes me uh, optimistic in media, it's just been the rise of podcasting, which even in the podcast I don't like, still strike me as a more productive, constructive human form than most of the other uh, dominant platforms have become. For sure. I mean, there, there's a piece I keep wanting to write, which would maybe be like a, another another and kind of this sci-fi internet trilogy. But I, I really love the Isaac Asimov Foundation series, and um, and there's like a foundation that's supposed to look after the the future of humanity across all these planets. And later in the books, you discover that there's this second foundation, this other group that is more advanced. And it ends up that what makes the second foundation advance is that they have surpassed language. They've come to realize that language is the great inhibitor of human beings, and instead they communicate solely through feeling and emoting and sort of brain connections. And, you know, I I found that interesting, this idea that language, which seems like such a uniting thing for us, but that, you know, this advanced society discovered that was the thing holding it back. And, I, you know, pod, podcasting does feel more like, I mean, even though we're conversing, it it does feel post-language if we imagine what language is on the Internet. Oh, that... that. That's so interesting. Wait, I want to hold, I want to think about this for a second. That seems wrong to me about podcasting and right to me in a way I never really considered about life. So I, I've gotten um, notes from our listeners who say that whenever I say as a, like as a new father, they drink. So as a new father, <laughs> um, but we had a, uh, we had a kid about eight months ago and it has really made me question the value of language. I'm somebody whose whole life is built on language. I'm a writer and a podcaster and I go on TV and I do videos and I'm a very eloquent guy. I've built a whole like life around that. And I have so much clearer communication with my son who can't talk mm-hmm. than I have with the people in my life. Mm-hmm. And then I read this book and she was on the podcast. Um, people can, it's a couple of weeks ago under uh, How We Make Emotions. Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's a psychologist and makes this argument that a lot of the emotional concepts we have end up basically deceiving us about what we're really feeling. That as we put language and language concepts to things, we end up forcing them into a groove that we're used to. And it becomes very hard to see what they really are and what they were, or at least that's my interpretation of her work. And I've just been thinking a lot more about how much of communication seems like it is empowered and clarified by language and in fact is uh, confused and misdirected by it as we try to turn what are feelings or senses or, or an emotional exchange into something cerebral that can be dissected and pinned down. Yeah, I I buy that. And at the same time, it makes my brain want to eat itself. Um, <laughs> but, but I agree. I know I get it. But also my brain really struggles to get it. But I, but I, I do know what you mean. I feel it. I feel it. You know, you're the second person. So Paul Krugman says that his whole uh, career is built on reading Asimov's Foundations. Um, I just t- taped a podcast. I don't know if it'll come out before or after this one with Michael Lind, who just recommended Foundations as one of his three books. I'd be just curious what you got out of it. It, it comes up a lot from a lot of different kinds of people. 
Well, I mean, one is there's this idea of psychohistory. Um, I think that's the term, which is the idea that there become enough human beings to where it's possible to create mathematical models to predict all human behavior. And that if it, with a large enough sample size, like it's possible to do that. And so it sort of begins with that idea. And, you know, I, I think part of it is just, um, it's just, it's just putting human beings in these extreme circumstances and, and, and just as Asimov is just, is just so brilliant. It's his imagination is incredible. His writing is, is also very, very good. He's a very charming stylistic writer. And yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know. I plowed through like eight of those books in two weeks or something. I just couldn't, I couldn't stop. Um, and I walked away feeling like, feeling like somehow Asimov had a, a really strong sense of human nature, even though he's a sci-fi writer, like it, it all, I kind of bought it all. Um, and he, you know, that's like multi, multi-generations goes over thousands of years. And so you meet all these heroes who are flawed in different ways. And yeah, it's just wonderful. You, you read that. And I don't know. It just makes me want to write sci-fi for the rest of my life. Have you ever written any sci-fi? I have in, in when I was a kid, I had like sci-fi books that I wrote. Um, I had like my own character I would write. And, you know, if I get to keep being an author, there's a, there's a sci-fi trilogy in my future. Was something that I don't think I realized until I did a podcast with N.K. Jemison about this, who's an amazing fantasy writer, uh, is just how much fantasy and sci-fi writers really are about human nature. I always thought of them as being, um, what what made them great was their ability to be scientific, but it actually seems what makes them great is their ability to do world building where they understand or they have a clear enough model of human nature and human society that when you then tweak something, either in fantasy through magic or in sci-fi through technology, that you can predict what humans do quite well. Yeah. It was many years ago I realized – I thought, oh, this is, I think this is what a, a fantasy sci-fi trilogy is. But I, I was like standing at a waterfall in upstate New York that had dried up. And I was suddenly had this image of a village nearby where at the age of 12, all the kids have to jump up, jump off the waterfall. And the ones that fly become protectors of their village and the ones that fall die. And I just like had that idea. And then I thought, well, what would a society be like where that is like the truth of things? That's just how things work. And as I thought about that question, I thought, I, I think that's what a novel is. I think a novel is is sort of inserting a, some point of difference and then just trying to play it out every which way you can. And you just see what that world is like. You try to taste it and feel it. And, you know, that's that's something that I hope to dive into right now. The you know, the, the world around me, you know, just beckons in too many other ways that it feels indulgent to, like, lose myself in that for a couple of years. But. But yeah, I, I think it is, it's, it's, it's just trying to imagine us in a different setting and, and just seeing what happens. But it's not just sci-fi. This is actually going to be a pretty good bridge to other things we're going to talk about. Having an idea of human nature such that you have a view of what would happen if you changed a variable and a different view of what would happen than other people have is also pretty, pretty key for business. And Kickstarter is in some ways a version of this, that there was an idea you guys had about human nature that was pretty different than the dominant view under capitalism of how people thought folks thought about money and thought about buying or funding things. So I'd be curious to hear about the roots of that, because it doesn't sound disconnected from this conversation to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, Kickstarter began in um, it was 2002 that Perry Chen, my co-founder and uh, chairman of Kickstarter now, first had the idea. Um, and we started working on it together in 2005. And, you know, the creative industry at that point was it was all labels, publishers, studios. If you had an idea, if you're a filmmaker, writer, you go pitch a bunch of suits and, you know, basically the, those suits are looking for a hit. And so the idea is to get the green light or ones that they think will produce a financial return. 
but you know, I was a music journalist then, and uh, you know, I like weird music and uh, weird movies, and so I knew the kinds of things that I love. Like nobody's making money, you know, nobody's making money on smog records or something. You know, it's just, this is just happening because someone feels deeply compelled, and yet, you know, just the system didn't work for them, even though the fans are there, even though the art is there, and so really, the core idea behind Kickstarter is allowing creative ideas to exist without any hope of profit removing the profit motivation behind uh, from behind deciding what gets funded and instead lowering the bar for you know there's always the great onion story like justify your existence would be their like one of their things but you know changing the justification for a creative works existence from it might make someone money to just people care about it and you know that came for us from looking at these things as fans looking at these things as you know we we were creative people who had no hope of creating something that you know would fit into the mainstream and for us it was just the most obvious thing in the world i mean when, when we talk to people when we talk to artists they also agreed this is the most obvious thing in the world when we talked to people outside of that scene it didn't make sense i mean, i remember one vc we met with very early on who was just like isn't there already too much art in the world like why do we need this and you know, I was like, all right, this, this, we should just stop this meeting now. So I, guess so I assume done. that was your Series A funder. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. We're like, great point. I love it. I love the contrarian angle. Let's do it. No. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, there, it was just a, a real lack of empathy. Um, but yeah, we just, we just looked at it kind of sideways and, and just found this other door in. And I guess you know, and through, I'm, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you for a sec because I want to hold on that VC for, for one minute. Because let me, let me try to take his perspective and, and hear how you respond to it. Because this, to me, now that we have Kickstarter, I think it is almost impossible and other things like Kickstarter, it's very hard to imagine it as an idea that to a lot of people didn't make sense, um, which I know is how it started out. And so forgetting the idea of whether we have too much art, if this art is something people would actually care about, then of course people would buy it, right? If you're saying that they would give you money to make it sight unseen, then of course they would buy it if it were good and it came out and they could support it and own it or or whatever. So like why what 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 wasn't working there? Um, you mean in this in the world before what in, wasn't in the working? world before, right? I mean in the world before where people can fund and um, be and, and purchase different kinds of art or CDs or Pebble smartwatches or whatever it might be. You know, if you care enough about it, um, you know, it seems like we already have perfectly functional markets. Yeah, it's just it's just hard to find that stuff when it's early. Um, and and especially there are some of these things that you just do need a level of scale. So something like Cards Against Humanity, that was a Kickstarter project funded by, I think, 700 people. Um, you know, they raised, I think, 15 grand, something like that. And, you know, to make a box of cards and print those cards, they needed to make enough of them. And, you know, for the idea of Max Temkin and them to make whatever, 5,000 of those having no idea who they're going to go to. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot for them. That's a lot of risk for them to carry. Um, so I think part of it's about reaching that scale. Part of it is you as an artist being able to like know that there are people out there for you. Uh, but there's just a, there's just a lot of stuff that fell through the cracks. And, and the beauty of Kickstarter is that, you know, there's, there's been some great businesses found, you know, created through Kickstarter. Peloton went public a couple weeks ago, which began on the site, but most of them are small enough that like they're, they're rounding errors on like a, not even a rounding error on like universals, you know, spreadsheets. Um, but yet they have meaning, they have meaning and there's enough of them. Um, and Kickstarter operates lean enough that you can build a strong and durable business off of that. So it was kind of like the, you know, it's kind of like the Chris Anderson long tail theory, which is, you know, back then was, was the thing now is long forgotten. Um, but it's a little bit of that idea. When Perry 
came to you? You were a music journalist. Why did he come to you? Um, I think, I mean, we, you know, we, we both liked basketball, so we were friendly, but I, I think the main reason was that my day job was at, uh, a company called emusic.com. So I, I worked at a company with .com in its name, which, which made me made, possibly made me the most qualified person he'd met to talk about this with. But, you know, we, we just immediately had a similar sensibility and, you know, and it was, it was just fun to talk about it, fun to think about it. And what made you jump onto it. Um, I mean, I didn't like it at first. I mean, he, he pitched me the idea. Uh, he shared the idea with me and, um, and I remember telling him it sounded like American Idol. I'm like, who needs this? You know, what really we want the public voting, like, you know, and, and, you know, what he came back to me with was like, don't think about mass market. Think about like the sculptor in Iowa who like people on the internet get their work, but no one around them does, you know, how does that person find their community? Like it's, it's for niche stuff. It's for small stuff. Don't, don't think about mass. And, you know, and then I could connect it to like, well, yeah, sure. A David Lynch movie. Of course I would. Well, sure. You know, a new nation of Ulysses record. Of course I would, you know, and I, 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 I could feel it. Um, but, I don't know what really what my expectations were. I mean, it really was just kind of, it was like, it was almost like role playing. It was just fun. It was fun to imagine we were starting something. I, I had no desire to be an entrepreneur and like that. That was never that interesting to me, but I, I just like doing stuff. I like making things. And so it was just, it was just fun. Um, and then, you know, and then it started getting real and, and, uh, but initially it was just like, yeah, this is a great idea. Like, let's, let's just do it. And it was just. It was just energy. It was a good vibe. You know, it just felt like the thing to do. How did it get real? How, how did you go from like somebody builds a website to actually people are putting their projects on it and other people are funding them? Not how does it get huge, but just how does yeah. it go to the thing is actually happening? Well, it was like there was probably three and a half years where we were telling people it's coming any day now and it wasn't. So we had, so there's like a, a pretty good list of people who shared the idea with who are all creative people. Um, but when we first launched, you know, it was, it was false scarcity. It was that, um, to start a Kickstarter project, you had to be personally invited by one of us. And if you got invited, you got five invites to give to someone else. And so during those first six months and especially those first two months, like getting an invite to start a project was a, you know, was something people were excited to get. And so it just, you know, that exclusivity, the fact that we were screening everything, the fact that, um, yeah, the fact that it was hard to get onto. Uh, made it more interesting for people. You know, there's a, there's a great book called the 22 immutable laws of marketing, um, from the early eighties and it has this, it has this idea of the law of fads and trends. It says there are, there are two types of growth in the world. There's a fad and a trend and a trend is simply a fad whose demand is not satisfied. And so if you are ever start to experience success, these guys recommend you should try to limit how much of your product can be made available in the marketplace. Because if you satisfy demand too soon, then you'll become a fad and people will move on from you. But if you maintain your level of availability to where there's always an, a circle of people who can't get in, but want to get in, if you do that long enough, then you can create a real organic, organic momentum all its own. So, you know, I hadn't read that at the time we were doing that, but when I read that, I thought, oh, wow, that, that's what we were doing. We were sort of manipulating the supply to make it more attractive, to build the brand. And, and yeah, it, it had, it had a, I think that's so much, so much of the early success came from that. What are the early things on it that you backed? Um, 
I mean, I backed almost every, everything. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've backed thousands of projects at this point. Um, the one, you know, the one that like, I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is something special. It was just a couple of weeks in and the rules are a little bit more open then, but we had a, a, a woman at, from LA who's like 22, became a friend of mine, um, Emily Richmond, who wanted to sail around the world by herself. She was inspired by some novel and she offered a reward where for $15 at some point on her trip, she would take a Polaroid. And then the next time she got into port, she would mail it to you from wherever she was. And I just thought that was so cool. It made, you know, it's like, Jules Verne romantic. And, um, and so I supported that. And like a year and a half later, I got a letter from Papua New Guinea and inside was like a map with a circle. And like, she'd circled where she was on the Island and she described where she was sitting on the beach. And at the end of writing the letter, she took this Polaroid and, and sent it to me. And like that, I just had never experienced something like that before. You know, it was just really alive, really alive. And so that, that was a moment that I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is more than I thought it was going to be. So you started, and I think I might have this wrong memory. You were the chief cultural officer. I, you know, I, I didn't really have a title. I just community officer. I I just talked to, I just talked to creators and backers and was, and was shaping our, our message and our identity and, you know, how, how we thought about ourselves, especially in regards to those people. How do you become CEO? Um, you know, that was like Perry had been CEO for the first four and a half years that we were live. And, um, and, you know, he was good at that job, but also didn't love that job. And, you know, we had always shared a lot of decisions and, you know, worked super, super closely together. And so, yeah, he, he let me know one day in 2013 that he's, he, you know, he was just tired and before Kickstarter, he was an artist and he's like, I, you know, I think I need to do that again. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we worked out like a, a long transition and, and shifted roles and, um, you know, it was, it was, it seemed the most natural thing in the world. And then, and then we, we were moving offices at the time we'd bought a new office in Brooklyn. And, and my first day as CEO was our first day in the new office, which was so big. It was like our team fit in a tiny corner of this gigantic two story warehouse. And we were all looking at each other, like what's supposed to happen here. And, you know, over the next two years, it filled, you know, it filled up and we really grew. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was not, easy. Um, but I, I really loved it. And, you know, until, until it, you know, it just wore me out. What wore you out about it? I I don't think I knew until I left. Um, but I think, I think part of it was, you know, I'd spent 12 years kind of thinking of every question, not through what I wanted, but like, what does the organization want? What does the brand want? What do creators want? What do the employees want? And I just always put myself last in in that thinking. And that's, that's just like a natural instinct I have. And that's just really taxing because, you know, only sometimes are you acting on really what, you know, what you want. Um, You're not even really permitting yourself to think about it. So there's just this level of you know, psychic responsibility for all these other people that, um, I felt like such a privilege to get to do. And I cared about so deeply. And I, I, you know, I think I'm very good at that, but it just became less fun, you know, especially as you get to a larger group and the idea of like, what is the, what does the organization think suddenly is like 30 different things, you know? And, um, so it just, it just, yeah, it just, it just got harder to, to behave in that way. And, um, 
you know, and, and, and it wasn't until I left that I, that I could really feel what had happened. You know, I could feel what I'd gone through because I, I was expecting like my first day, not going to the office, I would just sleep all day. And instead I felt like more energized than I'd felt in years. Cause I realized that I'm like, I I'm hustling for me now. You know, I'm not having to think about all these other people. I can just act. And that was just such a liberating feeling, um, that it, I don't know. It kind of, I think it made me more aware of what my experience had been than I had felt at the time. You have a really funny section in the book that I resonated with quite a bit where you describe the way tech CEOs talk to each other, where everybody's <laughs> always just constantly like, how's it going? They're like, killing it, man. Killing it. How about with you? And it's like, never been so, like, had no idea one could be this successful. And when I was, um, I was one of the co founders of Vox and was the uh, editor in chief for the first four years. And I just remember that being like every conversation people would have with each other. And then, of course, everybody would just step down from the job, you know, a year <laughs> right, or two later. Right, right. They're all and done. it would turn out that like everybody's later. unbelievably burnt out and exhausted. And there's this very funny, it's a it's a job where the the social energy you're expending, just worrying about other people and, you know, absorbing other people's upset and pain because, you know, mostly what people bring you are problems. It's really intense. And then on the other hand, it has this public facing role where it has to pretend that everything's always amazing. And it's like a very funny, I don't know, it's like a very strange culture uh, of that I found among CEOs and not one that I thought was very healthy. Yeah, I think it's, you know, part of it comes down to how deeply we're made to personally identify with these organizations, you know, and I think, we, I think everyone does that in an organization. I mean, you kind of want that. You want everyone to feel like when someone's talking shit about X, like they're talking shit about me. Um, so part of it, I think, com comes down to that. So there's just like an overly, uh, you know, just you, we could become so protective and defensive and, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, the moment, the moment I just decided I would just start being honest with everybody was just like such a relief. And it, it was just, it helped break down so many walls. And, um, and I started judging conversations with other CEOs as like, you know, I, I would often begin with like brutal honesty. Um, and I would just see like, are they going to, are they going to match me? Or are they going to stay at like everything's cool zone? And people that stayed at everything cool zone, I would just sort of politely walk away. And then if someone was willing to get real, like, those would be conversations that would bring me to tears because I would feel so grateful to be able to relate and so grateful to like be breaking through these walls with, with another human being. And, um, and you know, I, I feel like there's, who knows? I, I, I feel like I'm, uh, you know, I'm an old man in tech, in tech startup years. So I probably can't say what it is today, but it's really hard the degree to which we tie our, our personal identity to the success of these companies and our products. And I mean, I feel it today, like, if if 10 people write something bad about my book on the internet today, like I'm going to probably feel pretty terrible tonight. And, and, you know, uh, managing those emotions is difficult. Creating that separation is, dif is difficult. Um, it, it makes me want to like look back to the entrepreneurs of earlier eras and wonder if they felt the same way, but maybe it's just a different media environment creates that too. Yeah. And I think that there's different founder cultures. I mean, something that, that you kind of gesture towards here, but something that I felt with, found, with founding Vox and still feel at Vox is that it expanded the boundaries of myself beyond where I could protect them. As you say, you know, somebody talks shit about Vox, I take it very personally, but it's also a big organization. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I don't control every piece of it and nor should I. And I can't like keep an eye on all of it. And so it's just like, you're like something that I found nobody prepared me for and like nobody told me this is something you have to watch in yourself. But that if you do that heavy identification thing, 
there's just more of you out there than your like psyche can quite handle. And so I, I you know, you often read these um, books about, uh, you know, when, when, when you're running one of these things, you read like business biographies. And it doesn't seem to me to be an accident that a lot of the people who do really well at this for a long time seem like, like crazy psychopaths. Because if you're somebody who doesn't really care what people think of you day to day, um, your ability then to run something, like not burning out on what people say about it and like the problems your employees have and so on, just seems a lot stronger. Like there's a like the the whole thing that um, CEOs trend towards sociopathy does not seem wrong to me. I've met a lot who don't. I'm not saying they all do, but yeah. I, I get why that's a selected for characteristic. Yeah. And, you know, and there are times where I admire it because I'm like, whoa, that's like that's that's a tough that's a tough call, probably the right call. But like I yep. bet no one thought that was the right decision, you know, and I. I, I know what it feels like to do that. You know, I've, I've done that a handful of times and, and it's, it's really scary when you're standing out there on your own. So, you know, we, we do need, you know, you, we don't need psychopaths as leaders, but we do need people that can act on a conviction that is different than everything around them. And, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough balance that you have to walk. Uh, in terms of making some of these tough calls, something that you all did at Kickstarter, which is pretty unusual, was you, you made, you made some business decisions that were not the normal stream of a tech startup or even a business. You guys became a, a B corporation and you, you stopped from, I would say, just chasing growth. And the incentives and the push to just chase growth to take investment are, are really overwhelming. So I'm curious how you had an internal culture where you were able to make some of those calls, even as you saw your competitors, mm -hmm. um, you know, taking advantage of this kind of funding and, you know, financial maximization that, that you guys were sticking away from? Yeah. I, I mean, really, you know, that's something that Perry and Charles and I um, always saw eye to eye on, which is just like such, you know, we're just so fortunate that that's the case, that we we always had a similar notion of what it what it would mean to be successful. But really the first moment when that got put to the test was in 2012, and it was the year um, that Double Fine Adventure happened and Pebble happened, and it was the year that projects started raising millions of dollars for the first time on Kickstarter. And after no projects had done that the first three years, suddenly a project was raising over a million every week, and the culture around the site started to change. Kickstarter was now like the people's lottery ticket. Like there'd never been anything like this in history. And so people were coming to the site looking to make as much money as possible versus connect with the community. And, you know, the site was growing like crazy. We were only like 35 employees then. And in the midst of this, um, we just put on, we just put up a red light. We, we instituted new rules under a, a blog post called Kickstarters on a store where we prohibited photorealistic renderings. We prohibited all these things. We put in a bunch of, you know, fairly draconian, hurdles that were meant to limit how easy it was to raise lots of money on the platform. Because we, what we saw is that people are raising so much money, we thought because they were trusting Kickstarter. And we loved that they were trusting Kickstarter. However, maybe they were misplacing the trust that they had for the company onto a creator just because they were on the platform. And when we did that, it was such an unpopular decision. I mean, that blog post, it was, I think, October 2012, had 600 comments basically all of them being like f you you know how dare you try to patronize us um and there's a huge hacker news thread with a similar sort of spirit but I, I remember it was a thursday night that went up and perry and i'd spent two days writing that together and and i i knew that it was right 
I, 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 even as like all the hate was pouring in, I knew that, that we were doing the right thing and that a decision like that would extend the life of the company, uh, because we weren't, you know, we just weren't taking in everything that we could. And, um, so that, that ended up being a good lesson. And I feel like over and over, I learned that anytime the company was willing to show sacrifice, we just found a huge benefit because, companies make a lot of empty statements all the time, but like financial sacrifice is something that still stands out. You know, you had John Higgs on him talking about watching people burn money, right? Like this putting money at risk or taking less is like people still open their eyes wide at that. And, um, and so that, you know, that, that was a lesson I feel like we learned from that moment that, Hey, putting on the brakes, maybe you get a little bit of flack initially, but over the long run, I, I think that's how you create trust. When you said that the three of you shared a vision of success, what what was it? What, 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 what guided you? I think it was just this idea that like, just that most things become terrible given long enough time. And often they become terrible because it, it becomes about money or people check out or, you know, you just, it just, you get lazy, you get lazy over time. And we just, you know, we used to talk about the perfect ideal for Kickstarter being it's like the, the Green Bay Packers of the internet, you know, kind of a co-op owned by the public. It's a utility. It just does what it's supposed to do. It's, it doesn't do anything more than that. And like, and we, you know, Craigslist was always like our, 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 like our model company in many ways. And so like that notion of success of, you know, you stay the same and the world becomes more like you, we gravitated towards. We just thought that was cooler. That was more interesting. And for me to like, to become an entrepreneur being like a, you know, an indie rock kind of guy like that, that's what it took for me to feel really excited. If the idea was just like, let's be the biggest thing ever and flip it and whatever, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that would have motivated me the way, the way that our journey really did. Tell me about the, the form of incorporation you eventually did. Yeah, in 2015, uh, we switched from a, we were a traditional C corporation to becoming a public benefit corporation. That law was about two years old when we did that. But as a PBC, um, you write a charter that lays out your legal commitments. And as a PBC, you are legally required to balance producing a uh, financial benefit for your shareholders with producing a non-financial benefit for society. And, you know, that's always how we thought about it. Um, but we were also aware that as a traditional C-Corp with that attitude, that actually made us li potentially liable for a lawsuit. It was very unlikely to happen, but Ben and Jerry's was going to get sued for not financially maximizing before they sold out to Unilever. That, you know, I, I doubt any of our shareholders would have done that at the time, but but still, there was just this notion of like, why there's a classification that's meant for us. Why don't we try to move there? And what's cool about it is that to become a PBC, you, if you're doing it once you're already around, it's a vote that goes out to all your shareholders. And it takes uh, at least two thirds of shareholders to agree. Um, and so that happened. No, no one objected. And. And we, you know, we reclassified ourselves uh, into this new category, same as Patagonia and, and you know, a couple thousand other companies. Um, and to us, that was like, this is really who we are. We're structurally sound. There's no dissonance between what we say we want to be and what, like, what the form that we're a part of says we ought to be. And and also, also maybe we can be a role model. You know, may, maybe. Maybe for the, the next generation of people like us who felt alienated by business, but had the capacity to lead and to, to enact change. May, maybe this makes becoming a company, which we think is a, a great format to create 
social change, um, maybe this becomes more palatable to them. So really we're thinking like, how do we, how are we true to who we are? And also how are we building a legacy that, that maybe other people can build on? What are the benefits of being a PPC? I mean, what, what do you, what do you get as a company for opting into that? There's no tax break. And in fact, we, we wrote into our charter that the company was prohibited from using legal, but esoteric tax avoidance strategies. Um, I, you know, our PBC charter really lists a lot of things that have always been true about us. Um, but you know, I, I was CEO and we made this conversion and, and I could really feel the difference because whereas before we had had sort of values and beliefs that were kind of maybe guardrails, you know, maybe if you bang into something, they come into play. Once they were a part of our legal charter and our responsibilities, these things became less optional and they became more central to our thinking. Um, so there, there's no like, there's no practical benefit other than, um, I think clarity and operations, I think ability to have an impact. I mean, I think it helps your, your brand and things like that as well. Um, but there's no, you know, there, there's no like technical advantages really. Um, may, maybe someone will find some way to do it in the future. But then why does it exist? Like why, why did there need to be a law permitting you to do this? Because in a post-Milton Friedman world, companies are expected and, and in court have been found that they're required to maximize shareholder value. So the, the three guys that started the PBC movement um, who started the and one street basketball league and a bunch of, bunch of other things, you know, they came at this because they said, structurally, we have, we have a problem in capitalism. We have a problem that says the only thing a company can do is make as much money for its shareholders as possible. But yet we know companies create value in all kinds of other ways. And so what if you are someone like they were where, you know, we care about more about these other things, where are we supposed to fit? And so they end up having this idea, and it's amazing. They had to go state by state to each legislature and convince them to pass a law that would enable uh, the PBC form to exist. I think it was 32 states had done it last time I checked. But it was like real, like deep wonk work that they, you know, haven't gotten, a, didn't get a lot of attention for. But you know, I think sets the stage for, uh, for an, uh, you know, potentially a next era of capitalism. So let's move to to the next era of capitalism, which you're trying to bring about in this book. I don't want to get into it in a slightly odd way. Uh, so I'd heard an interview with you that introduced me to the idea of Alan Moore's idea space. To You mentioned John Higgs and his book on the KLF. And I've heard you talk about the experience of writing this book as sort of trying to exist in the idea space and like see what's lurking out there. Could, could mm -hmm. you tell me a bit about, what, I guess, the idea space and how you tried to operate within it in the construction of this book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like in the months before I started writing, and I, I didn't know I was going to write this book, um, but a friend of mine gave me uh, John Higgs's book about the KLF, and he gave it to me. He said, this is the little yellow book. Now, this is a little yellow book that will tell you how things work. And um, it, it really does. I mean, it, to me, it, it explained like what is the psychic energy that flows through the world and and how is it that our world is shaped and how is it that ideas leap from, you know, one person to another. And, and in it, he describes the the notion, John Higgs shares an idea that Alan Moore had, had that just as there is a physical world and there is a spiritual world, there's a chemical world, there's also an idea world. And he calls this world the idea space. And, you know, we picture it as like we all have thought bubbles above our heads where we're processing ideas, um, and which he says is is correct, but also those 
thought bubbles are more like houses where the doors can open and ideas can leave your head and they can meet in streets. And also ideas can exist independently of human beings and they can enter our brains. And that's how five people have the idea for radio in the same year and how Doctor Who doesn't have a creator um, and has persisted for decades. And so it's just this notion of like, here is this, this space that is beyond us, but yet some people have the ability to touch and some people can see. And as I read John's book and thought about this, I just had a I had a strong instinct that I that I f- can feel that and that I do see that and that my years as like being a writer and a music critic and doing Kickstarter it sort of taught me what it was to to dabble in that world and so as I s- had this idea for the the book I ended up writing I had this picture that um, that I, I was trying to like put a drop of red in the reservoir in the idea space that was shaping our perception of 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 the world and that I wanted to go as deep as I possibly could. I wanted to be like Luke going into the Death Star, trying to get to like the deepest, most vulnerable point. And for me, that came down to questioning our notion of what our self-interest is and what's valuable. And so I had this notion of like, I think if I question those things in the right way, that that might be the sort of sensitive point that that you can push on that starts to open up new kinds of doors. And as I was writing the book, I was imagining I'm I'm trying to create a, a piece of pop, like real pop, like it's it's a philosophical book, but it's a pop book that was trying to put that drop of red as deeply into the idea space as possible um, so that maybe it can start a, a chain reaction of events. But like that, that was my literal thought every day. And I, I would sit in my chair and just be quiet before I would start to write. And I would just, just try to be still and allow the idea space to like connect with my mind. And it wasn't always there, but some days it did show up. Um, so that became this like, this very ephemeral, but yet very concrete kind of audience I was writing towards, which is like the spirits of the idea space. And how do you tell a story in a way that they'll help carry it on for you? Before we get into the, into the idea itself, t- tell me just a bit about that ritual for a minute. I've just, I'm about to actually turn in, I think, a final on my book today, which feels great. But I would not say that what I do is sit and try to channel the idea space. I, I feel like I'm you know, hacking through underbrush in this very yeah. dedicated way. <laughs> yeah, I so, had those days too. Yeah. Tell tell me about the tell me about trying to enter a space of receptivity and like how does writing happen on a day when when you enter the idea space as opposed it it sounds a lot less linear than the way I think of writing a book. Yeah. I mean it it I kind of felt like I would I would build up reservoirs in my mind. So you know after I had like committed to the book and and sold sold a book proposal, I then spent two months doing only reading only reading. I only, I read Adam Smith. I read Marx. I read, you know, I read lots of philosophy. I just wanted to read like the core text of everything I was talking about. And I spent two months in an empty apartment with no internet, just covering the walls with index cards of like the things that, that struck me. And I spent two months living in like this, what probably looked like a serial killer's house, uh, but this manifestation of everything I was thinking about. And I would walk among my index cards and I would move them and I would, I was like feeling them. And only after I did that for about two months did I start writing. And, and then I ended up, you know, when I started writing and initially I would sit down and I would think, okay, like be brilliant, be, you know, be funny, do, do, do it all. And, you know, sometimes that would work, but more often I would fail. And then I would just feel terrible about myself. Uh, you know, my confidence would be shot. I would want to quit. Um, and I just realized that's, I can't demand that of myself. I, I can't, I can't demand myself to perform in that way. And instead I just have to like, I have to put myself in a position to where if, if I can't, 
can perform, I'm there. And if I can't perform that day, then I'm not going to like hate myself for it. So I, I kind of shifted my attitude to being less personally demanding. And then, and the other thing I did is I just, I just changed formats all the time. So once I got into the groove, I, it took about a month to write a chapter and I would spend three, three weeks just sitting in front of the computer typing, writing, and just like getting, you know, kind of just putting everything out there. At the end of the three weeks, I would print out everything I'd written and be about 70 or 80 pages. And then I would just sit there and I would read every line and any sentence I liked, I would cut it out. I cut it out of a piece of paper and I just put it in a pile and I would just start rearranging sentences and grouping them and grouping the themes. And so I would do three weeks of writing and the last week would all be spent in a physical space um, just trying to interact with it in a different way. And I imagined in those moments, what I always pictured was that like the way to tell the story was just always, it, it was like the secret to getting it was like, I was looking at a disco ball hanging above me. And, and the secret way to tell the story was on the back underside of the disco ball. And it was like in the exact, in the exact blind spot I could never see. But if I allowed my brain to go slack enough, if I tricked it with all these different ways, then I would fool it into showing itself to me. And I, I would just, I would, it's like, I'm trying to sneak up on my own shadow. And, um, and so I just sort of had these, these guiding thoughts that were, le that were less about like telling myself to have great ideas, but more like, how do I, how do I, how am I to put myself in a place of discovery? And I, I ended up finding ways, yeah, rhythms that, that worked. So something that struck me about your book is that as I try to track the idea space, which I do in, in my work, certainly in the politics and kind of socioeconomics uh, arena, one thing that I see a lot of different projects beginning to converge around is this idea that capitalism has morphed from an economic system to a philosophical one. And that what you call in the book financial maximization, what other people sometimes call neoliberalism, uh, it now orders too many zones of our life. How did you come to that? Did you see that as something that, that that you were fascinating on? Was it you read something else and you're like, aha, that's the problem? Like, what was what was your route to that concern? It was living here in New York. It was being the Lower East Side. And it, it was. I remember it was a day. It was a specific day that it happened, and it was it was the day that uh, I saw that Mars Bar, which had been like a punk dive bar in New York since the '80s, that it was being torn down. And that it was being replaced by a TD bank. And um, what was crazy is that there were already four other TD banks within a 15-minute walking distance of that corner. And as someone who lived in the neighborhood, I'm just like, this is this is insane. How how can this be happening? And so I just started, I don't know, that just stuck out with me. Like it stuck out to me. How could that be? And the answer I ended up coming to. Um, and I tied this idea also into like why every movie is a sequel and why Taylor Swift's on the cover of every magazine is that every decision that that we've come to believe that the right answer to every decision is whichever option makes the most money and it's only in a world where that's operating according to that default setting would the kinds of things i was seeing make sense you know they, they just couldn't make sense to me from any other perspective except we've just come to believe that this is the only way to make choices and um so i don't know i just like had that theory and I tried saying it out loud on a stage, on a stage in front of lots of people, and I really didn't know what people were going to think, but they people connected with it. People could 
feel and see this thing that was hard to see and feel. And and I don't know if I would have come across it if it weren't this like physical reminder of, wait, why the hell is my neighborhood so dramatically rechanging? Oh, changing is like, is there some glitch in the matrix that's just turning storefronts into banks overnight? You know, how, how does this happen? And so for me, it just took, it, it took a, a physical interruption of my life um, for me to really think hard about it. And, you know, and I, I don't know, my brain just kept trying to track farther and farther back to say, what, what could the cause of this be? And that's where I came up with this theory that we're now living in a world that's operated according to the belief that the rational choice in every decision is whichever option makes the most money. I mean, do we live in a world like that or do we just have markets like that? So, I mean, I think there's a difference between, I think the, the counter here would be that there's a difference between the world we live in and then the question of who a landlord rents out a building for. And like for the landlord, that building is there for profit, right? That's their business. It's how they feed their family. It's how they put their kids through college. And it's like, what would you have told that that landlord to do? Um, well, I mean, well, the, cha- the challenge is, is that the landlord was someone who had bought the property, you know, a year before and had bought it as an investment, you know, and, and was looking to flip it and, and to produce a bigger upside, a bigger return. I mean, part of it is that you know, New York City property in the 70s and 80s was being bought with mortgages that were all based on this future growth, right? Uh, that everything was going to have to produce this bigger return. And ultimately, that bigger return wasn't coming out of nowhere. It was coming out of the pockets of New Yorkers. It was coming out of the pockets of other people, like Trump funding all of his buildings through debt, like, you know, small New York City small businesses had to pay the price for that until they couldn't anymore. And then came chains who could who could start to pay those pay those prices. So, the idea that a landlord needs to earn enough to pay their costs and whatever. I mean, yeah, I I, I don't disagree with that whatsoever. I kind of think that there's like an extra twenty percent that we're squeezing out of everything here in the U.S. And I, I agree to I wouldn't say financial maximization is worldwide because I think that uh, you know other nations operate in different ways. I think this is a very American thing, but it's it's growing across the globe. And I, I think it's just that that extra that extra bit that we're trying to squeeze out that ends up having a, a lot of secondary costs, and those secondary costs are adding up as everybody is squeezing for that extra twenty percent. And so. I'll say that the book surprised me in terms of what it put as the, the the answer to this, which is not as much a like a counter value set as it is a way of thinking about value. So do you want to talk a bit about bentoism? Yeah. So I'm I wrote a book in 2019 with the word manifesto in the title that introduces a new ism. So so talk, so you talk about feeling vulnerable. Um but yeah, I mean I the kind of the core thesis that I entered the book with was our self-interest is bigger than we realize, and the world of value is bigger than we realize. And I, I didn't know how I was going to lay out that case, um, but there were two books I read that really started to put me on the right path. One was uh, by a philosopher named Michael Walzer, um, who's a professor emeritus at Princeton. He wrote a book called Spheres of Justice in 1983, where he writes that the biggest problem in the world is when a value system rules beyond where it rightfully should. So as an example, he cites Galileo being forced to change the values of science to match the values of the church or that being demanded of him. And that this in Walzer's mind is the greatest injustice. And value systems rule outside their domain all the time. It happens for reasons of royal blood. It happens for reasons of race. It happens for reasons of money or strength or beauty. And that this is ultimately the cause of all tyranny in the world. And that 
really our goal should be a world that's free of that kind of domination, where we're able to properly recognize the right values and make choices like honoring the right spirits. And then a, a woman named Elizabeth Anderson, who's another professor at the University of Michigan, a philosopher who just won a MacArthur this year. Been on this podcast. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, so she wrote a book in 1992 called Value and Ethics and Economics. After I read Walzer's book, it blew my mind. And I just started looking for who has ever referenced this book. And I found Elizabeth's book. And she goes a step farther and talks about the need for expressive value, the, the idea that we recognize sort of the multiplicity of value and that before maximizing a decision, we would first find what the right value at stake is. And so she writes about all the different ways that could happen. And so both of those ideas really struck me as being profound. And, and so, um, so I ended up creating a, a way, a framework, a tool to do that. I, it's called bentoism, um, named after the bento box. But the way it works is, you know, when I picture the way we imagine self-interest and value today, it's a hockey stick graph of a line sloping up and to the right. Um, and this is like the ultimate success case. This is what in your you know, board meeting deck you want to see on every slide. But it occurred to me that this hockey stick is just a small sliver of what's really out there because the x-axis of that graph measuring time, it keeps going from now into the future. And the y-axis measuring our self-interest, it also keeps going from me to us as our self-interest grows so does our responsibilities. If I if I look at Kickstarter, the experience of Perry Charles and I, and the experience of you know 150 people, it's like it's it's a dramatic difference. And so when I drew out the rest of that graph, I suddenly saw that our self-interest wasn't this single space where the hockey stick graph lives of this now me box. It, that's in the bottom left. There was also this our future me thinking about the old gray version of ourselves that made all the right decisions, the obituary we wish we could have, the person we want to live up to being. That's the bottom right corner. The top left corner is is now us thinking about the people we rely on and who rely on us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our families. And then the top right corner of this box is the future us thinking about the next generation and everyone everyone else's kids. And so instead of self-interest being just this one space of now me, I argue that our self-interest is actually all four of these spaces. There's now me, future me, now us, and future us. And that every choice we make impacts all those spaces. All those spaces influence every decision we make. But today we're blind to three out of four of them. We think of the challenges of the future as being nebulous. We think of the needs of the collective as being like emotional and somehow less real. And so we're like optimizing like hell for this one space of our self-interest and ignoring all the rest. And to me, that explains why, why we struggle with isolation, why we struggle with you know, solving the problems of the future, because we, we're trying to solve everything by getting more of what we want right now. And so I, I drew this, I drew this chart and had this insight. And then I thought, well, what, what is this a chart of? And I just tried to describe it. And I wrote down, this is beyond near-term orientation. It was like, try to, a way to see beyond the immediate. And I looked at that and saw that it was an acronym for bento. And I immediately thought of a bento box. And the bento box is a, what's amazing is that it's a, it's a balanced meal because the four compartments, you never have too much of any one thing. It's always a nice balance. And it also honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called hatahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So it's trying to apply that same idea of a healthy balance, seeing everything at once, acknowledging tomorrow, and using that as a framework for A, making decisions, B, defining what we think of as our self-interest, and C, I think also creating and optimizing new forms of value in the future. So let me take the, the skeptic side of this. 
What we have here, I think, the, the question it raises is do we have in our society a problem of modes of analysis or do we have a problem of values conflict or do we have a problem of values interpretation? So, you know, I think like a very easy example here might be something like climate change. Um, if you talk about, if you talk to somebody who's not a climate change denier, right, not somebody who says, oh, it's not real, but somebody says, yeah, it's real and it's there. But like what we should really do if you're thinking about the future is worry about economic growth because like the future, future us is going to be way better at solving a problem like this. And if we like cut back on growth now in order to, you know, protect them from this, in fact, like they would be better at just using geoengineering machines and so on and so forth. And my point here is not exactly are they right or are they wrong, but it's that we're very good at reasoning backwards from what we want to have happen into our values. And so a Mark Zuckerberg, or I think I can imagine all sorts of people whom you might want to have take this um, rubric more seriously. But my gut is that if they did, they would take it and say, yeah, the, the, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I'm trying to build for for the future. And you just got to take a little bit of pain now or, you know, it may not look right now, but, you know, I, I, I've got this right. Um, like, so how do you think about that? How do you think about the old Upton Sinclair line that nothing is harder than convincing a man of something that is outside his self-interest? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... Well, one, I, I I think it's a long I think it's a long term change. You know, I, I, in the book I write about a thirty year theory of change that I you know I, I don't think this is an immediate kind of thing. But yeah, you know, I think I come at this from being an optimist about humanity, and you know I, I think human beings I think we do the best we can with what we know. And as I started writing this book, I, I like took that as a given and just thought, well, what what new knowledge could we possess that would dramatically improve our chances? And to me, I arrived at these thoughts of expansion of value and expansion of self-interest because those are ways where you're not demanding that people's values change. You're just, you're just making people aware of new ways to succeed and new ways to define themselves. And I, I feel like that's something that people will do. You know, I, I, it's, it's not a one-to-one -one example at all, but I, I give the example of the NBA and the fact that the three-point shot wasn't used during its first 30 years it existed. And then someone created a justification using data analytics to say, hey, this three-pointer thing is way more valuable than we think. And immediately everyone just started chasing that. When when we see a better way, we go after it. Like I, I don't think we're so dogmatic about these questions. Um, so can this, you know, does this get uh, enough of a critical mass of people buying into it? Does it feel true enough, real enough to people um, that they're willing to go for it and go with it? You know, I, I can't say, you know, that today is the day it's getting published, but over the past six months, I've been running workshops um, out of my house, and I've done some online where I've been teaching people the system and, and teaching it as this is a, a process and a framework for finding self-coherence, for allowing you to make decisions that aren't self-conflicting. You're not compromising one part of yourself uh, so you can get something else, which is something Elizabeth Anderson writes a lot about is another injustice when we self-compromise. So I try to talk about it as like this is a way to find more self-coherence, to, to live more in, uh, of who you want to be, um, and that also isn't forcing any value system other than awareness. Like one, one of the things I thought about, um, you know, after I did it was I, it just occurred to me that like someone I disagreed with politically, uh, could use the bento to make more effective decisions that I would disagree with. And like, did that mean this thing was broken? Like had I created the uh, problem here? And I came to think actually, no, I, that might be good because it means I'm not trying to force anyone to think any certain way. I'm just trying to 
reveal to them what's really inside of them and, and what's, you know, what's really in their self-interest. So, you know, I, th I think being, I think being, having a healthy skepticism of this is right. You know, this is something that has to prove itself out. Um, but I, I've really become convinced that I mean, whether bentoism is the exact frame, the framework or phrasing uh, that, that ends up making this case that wins the argument, I, I've become convinced that, that this is real and that, that this really is a path forward for us. So, so take me through the workshop here. I think it's always better to show than tell. So recognizing some of this is visual, but, 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 but do it with me. Like, how would we yeah. do this? So you're in my living room. Hi. Uh, and, uh, and, and I start by, um, there's two pieces of paper on the ground in front of everyone and ask them turn over the first piece of paper and it has on it uh, the word should I and then a blank written down three times. And I say, we're going to start. I want everyone to write down three real should I questions from your life right now. Make one about work. Should I ask for a raise? Should I quit and go do my own thing? Make one personal. Should I tell him what I really think, um, you know, make one, you know, more silly or something. And so I have people write those three things down. I say, great, put them away. All right, wait, no, 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 wait, I want to actually do it. So let me try to think of a should I. Should I do more podcasting even at the expense of writing, which I love? Okay. Um, so you would start by writing that down. I would say, all right, don't think about that work. We'll come back to that. And then I walk people through the theory of financial maximization. I, I, I talk about Bentoism. I use it showing the hockey stick graph. And then I illustrate how Bentoism works using the story of Bruce Willis's character in Pulp Fiction and asking whether it was rational for him to go back and get his watch that uh, he and Fabian left behind. And I read a quote from a, the original script for Pulp Fiction where there's this great monologue where Butch is deciding what to do. And I, I map his monologue onto a Bento where I show that he's actually considering his now me. He's considering his now us. He's considering his future me and his future us. And there he finds that like future us is the right choice to make. It's not protecting himself. It's like living up to this legacy. So we do that. And then I say, okay, um, now we're all going to build our bentos. And first I need to volunteer. So Ezra, thank you for volunteering. Um, and then I, I have a whiteboard and I draw a blank bento on the whiteboard. And then I walk the person through each of the boxes. I say, okay, so now me now me is the is is what you want to need right now. This is the part of you that needs to be safe, that needs to be secure, that, you know, likes doing things that you want to do just for you. It's the most selfish part of you. Um, so now let's write down seven or eight things, you know, just write down what comes to mind when you think about what's important for your now me. So you might say, you know, good health, you, you know, some financial security, uh, being close to your family is important. Maybe you like some professional challenges or something. Um, so I write down those things uh, and you can write those down right now if you'd like, Ezra. Uh, and then I go to the future me and I say, OK, so this this box is about the person that you want to be. You know, the, the person that that made the right calls that at 80 years old, you look back and you're like, wow, I, I did it. You know, I, I, I really stood for my values. I did the right things. So when you think about that person, what what are they saying to you? What what are they saying is important? Um, for me, when I when I ask this question, um, you know, seeing the bigger picture, hunger to learn, um, not selling out. Um, creating harmony with people around me were sort of the things that stood out to me. And now we go to now us, and this is thinking about the people who you rely on and who rely on you, your, your family, your friends, your coworkers, and asking what's at the heart of those relationships? Like what, what do you give each other? Um, for me, when I answered this question, I came to realize that really I, I give my relationships deep time deep time and focus. I'm, I'm terrible on text. I'm a bad emailer, but like 
I can spend a whole day with someone, not look at my phone once, have the most amazing conversation and like, and that will carry me, you know, that will carry our relationship for six months. But so I realized, oh, my, my value there is it's about deep time. And then finally, there's the future us thinking of the, the next generation, our children and saying, what, what does the next generation need? What, how is the world left for me and how should the world be left for them? And so you're just writing down, everyone kind of has the same things for future us. And so you end up with like, you know, five to seven words or something like that, just sort of ideas, feelings of, uh, of what you believe in each of those spaces. And once we've written all those down, I say to the person, okay, now pick one of your should I questions and let's go through and let's ask each one of your bentos one by one what it says. And it's going to give preferably a yes or no answer. We like yes or no questions. Uh, maybe it will be unclear and we're going to answer those one by one. And then we're going to try to see what the big picture might say. So do you want to try doing that with, sure, with let's should do you it. do more podcasts? Let's yeah. do it. So you're, what, what do you have in your now me? What, what does it say about doing more podcasts versus writing? So podcasts seem to, they seem to be a place where I feel like my work is more distinct right now. They seem to be a place where I feel like the space for the work is a little bit healthier. On the other hand, I probably enjoy writing more. Um, I just like the work of it. I find it meditative. I find I figure out what I think. There's a big distinction between podcasting and writing for me in which podcasting is a great way for me to find out what other people think, whereas writing is how I find out what I think uh, or at least convince myself of what to think, which is a different way of looking at it. Both of them find audiences in different ways. Both of them uh, podcasts, I think, have a somewhat healthier business model at the moment, but it's not a huge difference if, if between you the think two. About, yeah. Im imagine, imagine tomorrow. Imagine tomorrow you wake up. Your job is to only do one of these two things. What would you be most excited to do? I don't know. I wouldn't want to give either of them up. All right. All right. So this one's unclear. So let's talk about let's talk about your future me. What what is your future me about? What is what does old Ezra want? I want to think that the work I did had a positive impact. That the work was of service. Yeah, what what kind of service? What what do you, what does that mean to you? I don't know. I've been going back and forth on this. One of the things that seems true to me is that in a kind of writing that I used to do, there was a little bit more focused movement of elites. So like I could potentially push people towards policies that I thought were better. Um, and the podcast seemed to me to do more to shape how people think. They give people ways of experiencing the world, which will help them you know, do whatever they do, hopefully, a little bit better. And I don't actually know which one is a more valuable way of of moving through the world. Um, but the kinds of reactions I get to the two are quite different, right? People who love a piece, what I did was either kind of convince them of something or I um, like helped them articulate something they believed. Whereas the podcast, if people are following along with these things, what seems to be happening, the reaction I get, which is also mirrored in, in my own um, experience of it, is that it is a over time, a kind of deep relationship that helps create lenses through which people look at the world. Great. Now let's let's talk about now us. What's happening in your now us? Who do you who do you think about? You think about your family. Like what 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 pops out when you think about your responsibilities to other people or your relationships with others? Uh, probably similar to yours. So the capacity to spend time, and then the capacity to not be stressed out all the time. The capacity to have work be finite as opposed to infinite, which has not been true for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Certainly not while finishing a book, by the way. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited about finishing that. But yes, so it's a mixture of being able to spend time, which I'm not terrible at, but being able to spend that time without often feeling harried, stressed, to come home and not be a worse version of myself than I was during the day at work, that kind of thing. Yeah. All right. And now let's talk about future us. What like the better what's the better world you imagine? 
Oh God! I mean, look, look at all, look, are we look all bleeding through gas masks, and it's just it's the climate. Yeah, look at the, the shit show around us. It doesn't take a lot to imagine a better world. Um, yeah. But as you say, people probably have very similar things in this one. Um, but I will say, I think that for me right now, I think that a lot of our problems are downstream from an increasingly fucked up political sphere. So one of the things that I'm focusing on in my work, which I think is a distinct approach from what I was doing even a couple of years ago is I'm trying to think about or model or approach different ways of thinking about politics and political communication and political relationships such that there's, I don't know, um, more, if before my thinking was about what is the best policy you could do, um, right now I'm trying to think about how could you fix the political system and our political relationships such that you could even imagine good policies passing. So as I listen to this, um, I have I have I have a very strong urge listening to you. One is that the question of whether to do one or the other, I I don't know is the right question. But I think the the fact that you ask them together, and if I listen to your answers, it tells me something. Which to me this suggests that there is the if I think about your desire for capacity, sort of finite time, trying to evolve the political sphere, that sort of impact. To me, this suggests that maybe you're supposed to create a new format that combines these things. Maybe you're supposed to execute a longer-term project that isn't just one or the other, but is actually trying to consider how do you bring together the, the power of these things and create, I don't know, create a different kind of audience. Um, find a way to bring the elites into it. Find a way to have that impact and to create that larger conversation. But to me, to me, this question just points to an opportunity that maybe you are about to realize or you should realize. But this sounds a little fortune telling to me where if I could I could totally imagine the box giving me yes, no or both. Like, how does it help me make like as you think about this as something that to bring this back to your work as opposed to mine, when you think about this being a 30 year project to get people to make valid to make decisions that are not based off of a more narrow version of self-interest. What 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 is this doing? Like, how does it get me off of like what could be the more narrow dimensions of it? Well, you know, the example I mentioned before about the woman who ran a creative agency asking whether she should work with big clients or small clients. When when we went through her bento, um, her now me says work with the big clients because I need to get paid. Her future me, which wants to be virtuous, is like work with the small people because that's what matters. But to me, what stuck out from her bento was that her now us value, when I asked her, what's at the heart of your relationships with other people? She immediately said, oh, I'm the truth teller. I'm the one that tells my friends what they need to hear. I do with love, but like I know how to confront people. And so when we asked her question about what should she do, I, I, I was like, listen, your answer is right here. It, it's, it's who you are in your relationships. It's being the truth teller, but it's being that with the larger corporate clients. It's, it's being willing to lose a job because you're going to confront them with values and you're going to try to do things the right way. But because that is your innate skill and who you naturally are, that's the way you can be self-coherent. That's the way that you can behave. And sure, you might strike out the first four times, but the fifth time, that's going to be the best job you ever had. Um, and so to me, what I have found is by looking at this, I end up finding kind of a third way. You know, it's not, it's sometimes it is like, oh, this is the thing I should do. But other times it's like, well, why, how come I haven't thought about it this way before? Um, so it, it's just, it's just an, an awareness to me. It's just, it's just creating an awareness and, and a little bit more of a concrete form. You know, I'm someone, when I have a decision to make, I'm spinning it over my brain for a week, you know, and it's hard to tell how you're really progressing. And, and to me, this is a, a structure that has been effective at, at bringing out what's in my brain and organizing it. And I feel like 
empowering me to make the choice rather than feel sort of feeling confused and limited by my emotions. One of the things I like about the idea of it being awareness-based is something that has been true in my life um, and that I've seen in, in, in people around me is that we leave too much negotiation with ourselves into the moment. And when everything is a bit opaque and you're doing constant like internal negotiation in the moment with this opportunity or that opportunity or that question or that friend, um, it's very easy to talk yourself into really anything. And in some ways, what struck me as very as more powerful about the exercise and being able to ask it a specific question was forcing yourself to articulate what are the values that are meaningful to you in different domains in advance. So then when you did have a question, you could really push it against them. Now, I could see people doing better and worse versions of this, but whether through Bento or someone else or something else, something that I think is an underdone thing in society is people actually pulling out their values and uh, having those ready so that the negotiation about what's important to them has happened beforehand, such that when questions come up, they get to fit into that context as opposed to just becoming the entire context. And the values then get um, reverse engineered out of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the structure is it's an admission of weakness on my part. It's it's an acknowledgement that uh, yeah, if I'm if I'm forced to react half the time, I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna do the lazy, scared thing, you know. And so I have to protect myself against that. I mean, with Kickstarter, one of the ways that we thought about our profitability is always being so important is like, man, it is hard to make good decisions. Can you like imagine how much harder it is if we're you know if you have your existential death facing you? So really even just to preserve sound decision making we should try to remove that threat from the table cuz you know we're going to that's going to screw us up um so I, I i really like beginning with acknowledging our human weakness treating it with love and compassion not judging it um and then saying well how how do we how do i work with that you know how do i how do i acknowledge it and honor it um and still allow myself to go where i want to go I guess it's a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you the question while you stand the podcast, which is what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? One I want to mention, I'm not done yet, but it came from, I was hanging out with John Higgs in London last week and it was a recommendation from him. And it's a book called Time Loops. And it's a, it's a scientific argument for a form of time travel. Um, and it makes the case that there's such things as pre-memory and that there are parts of our brain that live in the future and that give us information about the future, although we don't recognize it. And it's making the scientific case for this. It's it's so cool. It's so cool. I'm I'm super into that. So that's just a really fresh one that like that is a, that is a hard brain. argument to believe right now. I'm I'm Are you like, getting convinced? I'm so in. I believe right. everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love believing everything. Uh, that's that's one. Um, you know I. You know, I got I think I got to shout out Elizabeth Anderson again. I, I found that book, Value and Ethics and Economics, to be uh, tremendous. It's not super readable. Um, you know, it's it's a philosophy book, um, but I, I really love it. And then, you know, probably the one I'm just always going back to is is Dune. Um, just to go to real old school sci-fi, but like that that book is um, just so so. Brilliant, uh, really amazing how it writes about people, the ability to create myths, the fact that that was written by like a man in Oregon who was assigned to do a story about sand dunes and turn that into like this crazily kind of Muslimesque like sci-fi adventure. I, I think it's just wonderful. Um, yeah, so th those are ones a step that 
pop out. I, I, now that I think about it, I could probably list 20 more that I, that I like equally as much. But, you know, thank God for great books. Yancy Strickler, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Yancy for being here. Uh, thank you to all of you for being here. And thank you even more if you take a moment to rate the show on whatever podcast app you're listening on or send it to a friend or a friend of me. This is how we grow. And I'm grateful if you give a little bit back to the show, if it's meaning something to you. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Gill for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. My email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. 